This is the Off Mic Podcast, a radio show about radio life. Here's your host, Drew Dalby. Hello there, this is uh, Marty Forbes, uh, president of Radio Wise Inc., sitting here in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, uh, ready to talk to Drew. Good to have you on uh, our side of the border today. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. It's uh, I've, I've got all the, the uh, windows uh, blinds closed just in case and dreaming that I'm back, actually back down in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, but not too much longer. Do you find yourself paying more attention to the radio scene in Phoenix now that you're there, spending a good chunk of your time there as well? You know what? I have two web radios that I keep in both uh, Edmonton and Phoenix, and it doesn't matter where radio is. I listen to it from all over the world. I mean, Some of my favorite stations are over in London, England, as a matter of fact. They do some cool stuff over there, I have to admit. Capital FM and Heart Chain is absolutely phenomenal. If you get a chance, check out their websites. They're about as unique as you could possibly get. It's a great, great chain. Now, you're obviously in love with radio, but when did you know that you wanted to be in radio in the first place? Well, I was really lucky. Um, you know, for, for those that do know me, my dad ran Ched from uh, you know the day it signed on in 1954 till he passed away in 1981, and I was surrounded by you know one of the best radio stations and companies, Moffat Broadcasting. So I literally knew at age 14 what I wanted to do, and by the age of 16, dad had moved, so I was staying at Bonnie Dune High School and uh, I had to take a bus home all the time. It went right by the station, so I would drop in two or three times a day, or sorry, excuse me, two or three times a week and uh, I would just hang out with the guys and each one of them, God bless them, would help me learn different aspects of the radio station over about a two-year period. And by the time I was 18, graduated, uh, last test was at 11. In the morning, Dad picked me up, put me on a train. I was in radio at 2 o'clock in the morning in Kamloops, B.C. <laughs> that's, that's a hell of a start. <laughs> I'll never forget it. Long train ride. <laughs> so you skipped the, the formal training. that You didn't go to a radio school, but you had sort of more of the on-site learning as you go training. Yeah, I mean, I would sit in, in the production room and, and watch Al Anderson work with the talent. I would sit in the newsroom and Frank Robertson, one of the best news guys from the Chet era, would teach me how to write and edit. Um, uh, the creative department uh, had some great guys. And then sitting in on air with guys like Bob McCord uh, and the amazing amount of work that these guys did. You, had, you have to remember, this this is a radio station that had a 55 share. You know, the price of a commercial in 1980 that I can recall for West Montgomery was three $320 a spot if you could wow. ever get on this. It was huge. So every single person in that radio station was an amazing guy. And I just I just fed off the vibe and, you know, the concert scene, the music, the people that I got to meet. I came home one day and there's a bunch of guys playing in the backyard, this great big burly guy. It was Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks, who eventually ended up being the band. And they're throwing my brother and sister in the air like they're sacks of potato. And I'm just sitting there taking it all in as a kid going, hey, this is kind of cool. And I didn't realize till later in life. Good God, that was Robbie Robertson and the band in my backyard. So I, I just fed off of the early years and was was just so fortunate to, to have role models that I had. With being able to go in and sit in in every department in the building and learn the different aspects of the industry, what made you decide to start as a writer when you went out to Kamloops? Because I'll, I'll be really honest, I was a lousy disc jockey. I, <laughs> I sat in that control room and I tried. I just didn't have the natural talent, but I was always been told by people that that I had great writing skills, and my and I knew that I my goal was not to just get into radio. My goal was not to just catch my dad; it was to beat my dad. So I knew that I had to, I had to strive really really hard and learn a lot about different departments. So my entry level was the creative director, but within I think it was seven years, I'm I'm programming radio stations.
relations uh, that eventually got me into Vancouver and Toronto uh, and then to vice president general manager. So my, my goal was always to reach the pinnacle of the business and I knew I had to learn a great deal about it. You also did some on-air in Kamloops, correct? I, uh, yeah, I was really lucky. Back then, 9 to 5 uh, was a Monday to Friday. We were open 9 till noon on Saturday where I'd write commercials and I would go home and do uh, 7 to midnight on CHNL. Uh, and then over the summer when holidays started to kick in, I literally would work 7 days, 14 days in a row filling in on, on every shift from, from middays to weekends and, and uh, you know country music and, and adult contemporary rock, everything. So I, I in two years, I got the full meal deal. Did you ever keep any of the tapes from your on-air era? Do you know what I did? I just literally cleaned out the uh, my office here about a month ago. It's funny you should ask that. And I and I got rid of them. Um, <laughs> I mean, they're all on reel-to-reel tape, which you can't even transfer. I, I missed putting it all on. And believe me, there was nothing worth saving. <laughs> my brother Jerry got all those skills. <laughs> now, what was that like? Because as you're coming up sort of more on the creative and programming side, you did have a brother, Jerry Forbes, who is still down in Calgary doing the morning show there who went more of the on-air route was there any competition between the two of you or because you went in such different directions was there sort of none of that well actually again uh, my brother Gord was in the middle of this too and Gord actually started working with with Tommy Banks and some young guy named David Foster producing music in the early 70s so people forget about Gord because he's gone through the uh, the sales department but uh, you know that we have 160 years of radio collectively with uh, with dad in the Hall of Fame and Jerry and I in the WAB Hall of Fame. Gordy would have been there uh, with his knowledge if he hadn't gone into the sales department. But each guy fed off the success of the other guy and each guy's just as proud of their achievements and we, we used to say when we'd all get together at, at Christmas, it wasn't really Christmas, it was more like a convention because it was always talking about radio. It's a shame Gord went that way because now he's basically the third Manning brother. <laughs> Gord did, did real well in in, uh, in programming and production as well. His love was in the sales department and ended up being the VP of business for the Vancouver Canucks and now is running his own company very similar to what I'm doing. Yeah, all right. I guess he did okay. He did okay. He's got a bigger house than we do. <laughs> and that's what it comes down to in the end. Cashola. We got the girls and the concert tickets. He got the cash. <laughs> now, we, we talked about you had no consideration of an on-air career. Instead, you went to the creative and the programming side. You spent two years in Kamloops as a writer and doing that fill-in. How does that turn into a creative director gig in a city like Calgary? I guess it was the Moffat connection, and I got a phone call out of there about a position and went and interviewed for it. Back back then, most of, of each of these radio stations were run, you know, locally by the guy that you work directly with. And the Moffat thing was always a collaboration. You were always welcome to sit in on, on other meetings. And same with the music departments, you would sit in and listen to music. And and again, the same kind of kind of participation where you got to help build the radio station with with great people and learn from Keith James and Greg. So it was, it was, you were welcome into this club, and that's where I really wanted to, that's where I really developed my, my want and desire to become a program director, and I, I would not have made it if I hadn't uh, worked in that kind of an atmosphere where you were allowed to, to uh, sit in and state your opinions. So you were at CKXL for uh, about six years, and then you moved to Lethbridge, and that was your first chance to sink your teeth into being the program director. What was the, the transition like for you? to go from sort of monitoring one department and keeping tabs on other departments 
to now you're running the show. Well, there was a there was a short break in there. I left CKXL after they'd hired their fifth program director in five years, and I walked in to Keith James and I said, "Well, why wouldn't you hire me?" And he gave me the best answer ever: "Is you never applied." <laughs> I, I looked over like a fool and I went, "You know what? You're right, Keith. You're absolutely right." And this is when they were launching. McLean Hunter was launching CJ Tommy Tompkins, who I had hired as a writer, was hired to be the program director, and he hired me to go. And as we launched CJ, and they lost a few people right off the bat. I did mornings for, for three months until they could find somebody, became the operations manager and handled a whole bunch of things and that's when I got the phone call to go to Lethbridge and everybody thought I was absolutely crazy and dad and I talked about it and I said, you know, this is the kind of company I want to work for and that's the kind of market I can go in and, you know, do some things on my own. I might not have it in Calgary for some time or, or in another market for some time. And I went down to Lethbridge and worked with uh, again, an amazing company. The Selkirk people were, were absolutely phenomenal people. And uh, God, you know, when you think of CFNY in in, uh, in Toronto that they had and the radio stations that I ended up in Vancouver, it was just probably the best thing I had ever done was to take a step back into a minor market and go learn the hard way and again, once again, and do everything. It really is interesting because you don't see it a lot, especially in today's radio, everybody's trying to go up and forward and onwards, and, and really the only time you see somebody take a step down or back is if they've been fired or cut or, or whatever the case might be. But was it a lot more prevalent in, in those days, back in the 70s and 80s, for people to, to move down just to try something different? Yeah, well, I mean, when I look now on, on Milkman or see these ads and I see a national chain with a billion dollars in profits that don't have a designated training market, it just absolutely fascinates me. I mean, Moffat had had, uh, had Moose Jaw. If you look back at the, the last 30 years of some of the top broadcasters in this business, Morning Men owners of properties, they're on, they worked in Moose Jaw. And Selkirk was the same kind of thing in uh, in Selkirk. Chum had a number of them as well. And there, there's so much to learn when you go in and do six, seven days a week. When you go out with the sales guys, when you when you do community service and you see people bringing pies into the radio station to thank you and invite you into their homes after coming down to play hockey against them, that kind of thing. There's so many things that you learn in those markets. And, and I used, used to use the analogy of, of hockey. You know, you go to junior hockey and then you you go to the AHL unless you're a superstar, and then you go to the NHL. And every one of those guys that take that progression will tell you that they learn something different in each of those markets. And the good thing back then is is most of these markets had absolutely amazing program directors or general managers who would take the time to, to sit down with you and teach you things. And uh, I learned, I, I learned, I, I think it's another one of those things. I just would not have made it to Toronto radio and Vancouver radio if I wasn't as well-versed as I as what I learned in this uh, kind of a market. Nowadays, it just seems to happen too quick for a lot of these people, and they really don't have, they're not surrounded with, uh, you know, enough mentors that will take them aside as young kids and, and teach them what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. And it's, it, in, my, in my opinion, it's a pity. Well, I was going to say, it seems like the bigger companies aren't as worried about the smaller markets as a, as a feeding ground, like you were saying, because they're really, they're starting to scoop those people out of broadcast school or who have maybe one or two years experience and they're pulling them into the bigger markets 
because they can pay them less. They can get them to do multiple positions. So it seems like they're skipping the step. They're taking the young talent, but they're pushing them uh, right to the top. Well, they, in each of these, and I never, <laughs> I always don't like to, to sound like I'm an old guy in old school and thinking like this, but it was so different. If you went to Moose Jaw, you knew if you worked your tail off, you were going to learn enough to get into Winnipeg, Edmonton, Calgary, or Vancouver. Uh, same thing with Chum. You're going to end up at, at Chum Radio Toronto or CFUN in Vancouver, CFOX, some of these great radio stations. So you, there was a corporate culture where, where these people would spend a good couple of years helping you along, and and as part of the allegiance, you never want to leave that company. Now, it just seems that, that people, you know, will get a job offer from one place, stay a couple of years, move to another place for a couple of hundred bucks, whatever. And there is no longevity within that and no chance to, to move forward in the same kind of progression that I did. And most of the decisions now are being made in, in Toronto or back east in some manner for all of these positions. So it, it's just not the same. It's, you're, you're, you don't really have, you know, a program director that has to look after 150 radio stations probably not going to know very much about that up-and-coming guy practicing on the all-night show in Lethbridge. So in this day and age, and I will get back to, to your career, but I, I just I want to keep uh, going down this path. In this day and age, would you say that it's more important for broadcast students and young people in the industry, and really at, at any point leading up to that sort of major breakthrough, to be sending out tape to as many people as they can, not necessarily looking for jobs, but looking for advice, looking for tips? Um, well, yes and no. I don't encourage anybody to send tapes out if somebody's paying you to do the job that you're doing. What I firmly believe in is, is and this is one thing that, that, that drove the Forbes family, I worked to make sure my dad was proud of me and my brothers were proud of me. I worked for Marty Forbes as my employer first. I wanted to make sure that my reputation uh, it was strong, that my knowledge was strong, so that people would come after me so that I had the leverage to say, well, yeah, I'm going to move from Vancouver to Toronto because this company wants me. Um, you you have to build your own brand. You've got you've to be respected within the industry of being a good broadcaster, a good news person involved in the community, the full meal deal. Now, that part is never Never changed in today's day and age. I understand if if you're caught sending a tape out, you could be unemployed and sit on the beach for a good long time. So it's a little bit different that way. Now going back, you were at Selkirk and you talked about how you were excited to jump into that company and how well they took care of you. Two years later, you're back with McLean Hunters and you're launching what's now Fresh FM in Edmonton. Talk about that move. Well, that one was a, a bit of a sad one because my dad had passed away, and I was I was really fortunate. There were five applications for FMs in the city and all five had given me job offers so I knew that I was coming back to Edmonton one way or the other dad passed away and I had to come back to Edmonton now the, the bad part about what had happened then is is twofold the CRTC should have never licensed two country radio stations at the same time Bob McCord was a legend in town got built Kissin which is still strong today and McLean Hunter came in after Bob McCord had scooped up all the good people and himself and we had to go take them on with a with a hybrid format that just wasn't wasn't there rocking country and um, I came did my my duty with my dad and kind of an ironic story here uh, we knew the format wasn't working so I spent literally a year building a new format and I had it in my desk and there was a meeting with the top brass of McLean Hunter as I walk in the door the general manager grabs it from my 
hand and says, Marty, we're not going to change format. Hang on to that. So I go to the meeting, don't get to say a word, but I kept the license. When I knew they weren't going to change it, I, I decided that I was was ready to move on and phoned my friends at Selkirk. And ironically, the license that I had in hand, I flew into Vancouver. It took us about a year later, and we flipped the format from C-Jazz to the license that I had written for C-Jacks in Edmonton, which is now Jack uh, and soon to be, I'm not sure, another format coming out because they've changed the call letters to C-Jacks, which is quite ironic. So now you're out in Vancouver. How does Vancouver radio differ from Edmonton? Because both are kind of held in that same standard of, of being major market, but I, I don't think there's anybody that wouldn't admit that Vancouver is the bigger jewel in the crown. I absolutely love my time out in Vancouver. Um, spectacular radio stations, spectacular guys. Uh, I'm watching Donnie Schaefer, uh, you know, getting set to build yet another radio station after the amazing work he did on CFOX. Every single one of those radio stations were the best at what they did. I think CHQM had a, a 10 to 12 share all the time. Uh, there were so many good radio stations. The top 40, the, the uh, CFON and CKLG at that point as FM was just growing. And then literally some of the finest production voices and morning men. I mean, to work with guys like Doc Harris and Terry Reed and, and legendary broadcasters uh, was truly phenomenal. And, and that's what uh, that's what got me to Toronto was my time in Vancouver. Just another uh, side thought. You've mentioned CFUN a few times, which was a huge station back in the day. Uh, went away and has recently been brought back. Do you think that there really is a big market in the industry these days to sort of reflect on these former giants? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. You, you you can't capture that because of, of you know so many different reasons. I mean, the, it, we used to know who the all night guy was at Seafun. Captain Midnight had his own club. Um, but, you know, and there wasn't there wasn't the CanCon restrictions that we had. So you're playing the world's best music. They had massive budgets for promotion. You look at the boom boxes and the television stations and, and the awareness and the concerts. And I think by smacking on you know call letters that don't mean the same to another generation. It kind of demeans it. I mean, CFUN stayed on AM for so many years. I don't know why they didn't flip to CFUN FM uh, back then, but it was because CHQM was so strong. So you know, there were great call letters, but they certainly don't mean the same to this generation. So we have left you. You're at uh, CKKS. Now we're in Vancouver, and you're starting to make that move towards moving from program director to VPGM. Let's talk about that transition from about 1988 to 1990. Kiss came out of the gate and did, did tremendous. I mean, I'm really, really proud of that radio station. And it, it was a phenomenal place to work with a great general manager who passed away a couple of years ago, Tom Peacock, who I adored, and John Yakabuchi in sales, and Ted Farr, Tata Gupta, They're just some amazing people to, to learn from. And I got the phone call. Actually, it was from Brother Jerry saying that the Chum in Toronto had lost a program director. They want to talk to you. And they flew me in, and uh, Jimmy Waters hired me and I flew back and and uh, you want to talk about a wife that loves you <laughs> I, we sold the nicest house that we had just moved into after nine months and moved to Toronto in under that kind of a pressure now you talk about station culture an awful lot I just didn't fit into chum and it was at a time when am was really on the decline and chum FM was a super strong radio station and our mix my mix with that staff and my mix with with the owner just didn't work and I was unemployed and said 
sitting in Toronto feeling sorry for myself when, thank goodness, Gary Slate had phoned me and said, let's get together, have a chat, and hired me to run CKFM. Now, a codicil to that is that Alan Slate and my dad signed Chet on in 1954. Gary Slate was born about three blocks away from me at about no, six or seven weeks after me, and we'd known each other for, you know, literally since birth one way or the other. So going over to CKFM... Um, again, I, it was just a great culture, and of course CFRB down the hallway with you know a legendary cast and uh, Gary and the team that he put together in that. And I ran CKFM for for two wonderful years. Uh, I didn't like Toronto. Uh, we had you know two young daughters, and and Kim had a son from his fir- from her first marriage, and I was spending three hours a day on the road, and uh, I just didn't like Toronto radio. I wanted to go back to Vancouver, and that's what we did. So you moved back. Now you're now is this when you moved to CISL? Yep, and uh, unbeknownst to me, they were selling the company. Oh, wow, that's fun. (laughs) And I was about uh, 13 months into the mission there and got called in with about 17 other people and say, oh, we're selling the company and we can't tell you to whom and uh, let us all go. And I think with maybe six weeks, I get a phone call from Gary again. And a line that I'll never forget is, Marty, how would you like to go home? And that's when the call came to run Edmonton. And that's where I know you from. We worked together while you were the VP GM for what was then Standard Radio has now gone through a couple different changes and is that Bell Cluster in Edmonton. You get there in September of 1991 and that would really be your big run in the industry. Was that sort of your chance to really put your stamp on on a group of stations, on a market, on the industry as a whole? I don't like using the term "put my stamp" on it because it was never about me. Um, I, again, I'm kind of I'm fortunate that I uh, I'm a bit of a magnet. I like to surround myself with really really good people. Gary and and the standard guys and the research and the and the uh, consultants that we had put that radio station together. I was about a one of about a dozen guys that sits in a hotel room for two or three days and come up with a what if what if what if. And of course, Eric Samuels, you know, does the format. Um, it was a great crew to, to you know launch a radio station with, um, but it was it was an amazing team. I I, I kind of often get way more credit for doing <laughs> on, uh, uh, the, all the hard work that a lot of other people did. I, I I'm in you know the good part was I'm an Edmontonian. I'm a Forbes, and I could uh, you know kind of coordinate things. But uh, good gosh, there was an awful lot of, of great people that worked at that station and, and launched it, and it's still strong today. So let's talk about the bear uh, during your tenure with it were you there at the launch of the bear yeah i wasn't running it at that point um, we had a, a another gentleman running it and it didn't quite work out with with what gary wanted to do and uh geez, i can't remember how many months maybe two or three months after we launched the bear i uh, i got the opportunity to run it and what was that vibe like in the beginning because i mean you know if you're from alberta or the edmonton area you've heard of some of the big names that were around and and some of the stuff that the bear did at the beginning it was all very cool stuff what was the vibe like in the building while that was all happening um it, it was tremendous i mean it's it's tremendous and it's legendary it, it, there's an amazing bunch of creative people and the best part was the, the standard used a, a similar of synergies with other radio stations but nothing was rolled out and told that you couldn't do it and and we would go in and build things and share with other stations and, and the other program directors in Calgary and Vancouver would take a look at plans and and you know help make things better we weren't we weren't just this autonomous island out there but we had enough you know trust 
driven by Gary and, and people in, in Standard to do some pretty crazy things, and, and we did them. And it's interesting that you say that that was something that you guys sort of started doing because you see that more now in the industry with these big companies that own multiple stations. I know for a fact the company that I work for, we're constantly in contact with the other stations in the company. And even the bear, I know to this day still talks to CJ down in Calgary and they share ideas and and prospects and that sort of thing back and forth. So is that something that maybe the rest of the industry took a look at what you guys were doing and said, that seems to be working. Yeah, I mean, I, I was rather proud of watching when they started to develop bears across the country. I mean, you know, Fort St. John and then Ottawa were based on this one. And you found that with, with a number of formats in Edmonton that, that uh, run by the other companies that have shown up elsewhere as well. And Ed- Edmonton's always been known as, as a really good radio market, going way back to the Ched days and, and an awful lot of innov- innovative programming, both radio and TV. If you look at it uh, got half the people you see in Vancouver and Toronto came out of Edmonton. It's a it's a great leading market for that. On the other side of things, on the AM side, uh, CFRN radio has gone in a very different direction now than what it used to be. Sort of, can you tell us sort of the transition from CFRN to the twelve sixty sports radio? Oh boy, that was that was quite a story. Gary and I had been talking about uh, sports for some time, and knowing that you know, realizing that you know the AM band. Was was akin to to talk rather than music. I'm I'm saying that without uh, the due respect with CFCW radio station because it's so ingrained in in uh, you know the rural markets. But we knew that that uh, AM just wasn't going to work for a music format and wanted. We kicked around a number number of things, a business channel and, and the comedy channel way back then. And then uh, TSN, uh, excuse me, Chum at that point came to Gary and was talking about putting this chain together. Uh, based on 1050 Chum in Toronto and launched the thing and away we went with it and unfortunately folded in Toronto and I'm on holidays with my daughter in Banff when I got the phone call. Was, Marty, we're pulling the plug tomorrow and got on the phone with Gary and uh, uh, Rogers Communications and a couple of other companies and patched together what is was then Team 1260 and Bryn Griffiths and Jake Daniels and uh, you know Bob Stoffer and a couple of other guys like this and patched together this radio station that today is now really thriving I understand through the TSN <laughs> allegiance that is now back. And it's interesting because yeah it was the the fan radio network and it was across the country and that like you said it, it splintered it broke up it did manage to stay, you know, there was 1260 in Edmonton and Calgary had one and, and Vancouver had one and across the country, these sports radio stations that were fan and team. And now you're seeing all of a sudden this resurgence almost with Sportsnet investing in a bunch of stations and TSN investing in a bunch of stations. And would you say that Sports Talk Radio in Canada is finally starting to approach sort of the level maybe that it is down in the States with the ESPNs? Um, yes and no. Um, if you, if the, the ones that are the most successful have a broadcast rights agreement that sustains that all that evening tuning. Uh, if they have two or three franchises, I think Ottawa does really well. I've got they've got a couple of franchises, including soccer and, and lacrosse and things like that. Um, those ones will get you a good three to four share. You hit the playoffs, it goes through the roof. Uh, the other ones are, are stations that have a hard harder time because they haven't got the broadcast rights, but they do have the credibility because they can go on and, and criticize the local team. So it, it's it's part and parcel. It's great to have the broadcast rights, but you also want to be credible and be able to turn on the radio station. And if this team's in last place, be able to take a shot at it without the owners having to worry about you. So uh, I, lo- 
love sports radio, though. It's, I find it very compelling, and, and uh, we're lucky to have a, a number of good shows on, on both Chet and, uh, and 1260 here in the city. Well, and I, I know just from being in the building, and I got my first gig was at Team 1260 back in the, uh, in the standard days. I know there were a number of times where there you had to go to bat to explain the number might be low, but we're still doing well. I know that you faced some people that maybe above you thought, we could be doing something else with this. Well, yeah. I mean, everybody seems to think that that you know, the if you rank last in a market, um, that you're not successful. Nothing could be further from the truth. The sports stations in New York uh, traditionally rank last, and they're the number one billers because they attract you know 100% male clients and some really really big ones, beer money, sh- you know, shaving money, whatever. So it isn't necessarily in a market of 26 radio stations that you have to beat 24 of them anymore. Now let's talk about the transition because uh, at, at one point the company did go from standard radio to astral media what was that transition like for for you up in the corner office it was really good for me um i'm i had planned to retire at age 58 it was my goal and i was working towards it simply because that's when my dad passed away at age 58 and at literally at his funeral i looked over to my brothers and i said that's it that's my benchmark i want to make it to 58 then i'm i'm leaving the industry so i i was fortunate i i told gary slate and he knew what my plan was and when I turned 57 I gave him one year notice and that's when he told me about selling off to Astral and that uh, you know we would have to I would I was on a list uh, that I wasn't going to be fired and that he needed my help to do the transition and I stayed for the year uh, I really enjoyed the Astral people they, they treated me really really well but it was my time to move on and I kind of facilitated the move and moved on and uh, actually hired me as a consultant to teach other general managers for a year, or up-and-coming general managers, which is kind of cool. And then they hired me to do their national radiothon, which we did for three years. And I'm really proud to say literally that it was the number one, it's the biggest one-time radiothon ever held in the world. There were 82 radio stations one day, and we did it for three continuous years and raised $21 million for Children's Hospital. So I was pretty proud to be working on that crew. And at the same time, I opened up uh, RadioWise Inc. and started to do some work in uh, in some other markets. Uh, I helped launch Craze in, in Red Deer, and then the Paul Larson and the Clear Sky people hired me to do about a year to help out in, in Lethbridge and Medicine Hat. So I had uh, the best of both worlds uh, to work with the Astral folks on that project and then to start to develop my own new business. I was I was going to say, I was laughing a little bit when you say, you know, 58 and then I'm done, I'm, I'm out of the industry, but we all know that Nobody gets out of the industry, and here you are now with Radio Wise, and you're almost more involved. I mean, from a different perspective, obviously, but now you've got your fingers in in a number of different pies as opposed to being the guy at the top of one. Yeah, uh, again, so fortunate. I mean, by moving down to Phoenix, um, uh, I've been focusing more on digital, and the U.S. is way ahead of, of uh, the application in digital. And the term I like to use is there, it's integrated into their operations down here. I really find in Canada it's, it's not. Um, our websites, generally speaking, are all run by the sales department. Uh, 85% of the content, 10% of the rest of the content comes out of Toronto, and about 5% is sitting here locally. Down 
in the U.S., um, the digital is really part of the overall broadcast. And if you look at something like The Voice and see the proper use of hashtags and the research capability of hashtags and how they're using them to, to dial into live coverage out of Ferguson via your via mobile, um, it, it does some pretty neat things down there. So my, my job the last couple of years is working with companies to properly uh, adjust their marketing and media uh, for what I call declining versus inclining media. And it, it is no secret the newspaper template is changing, the television te- template is changing dramatically, and newspaper uh, radio as well. So I go into places like the TELUS World of Science, and I do all of their special projects, uh, redevelop their websites, get them into into the proper use of Pinterest, which is way bigger in the States than it is up here, uh, Instagram accounts, and go in and work with their staffs. Um, I've got a number of clients that I do that with, Boston Pizza of uh, Northern Alberta, we launched. And I do a number of other projects and, and chats with business to help them understand how rapidly uh, the smartphone and the tablets are growing into a business application, which is really quite interesting. It used to be that a radio station maybe couldn't be number one, but they could survive without doing all this extra stuff, without having the Facebook and the Twitter and the Instagram and the Snapchat and all these other things. In 2014, going into 2015, is it? really possible for a radio station to even survive anymore just being a radio station? You know what? Demographically, yes and no. Uh, the higher you up you get in the demographic, I mean, some people still think I'm a three-headed monster for the amount of work I do in digital, and that's that's just people that don't understand it and don't don't utilize the power of it. The younger you get, the moderate uh, you get into the moderate crowd, and you know they're consuming uh, their their media via you know the Netflixes and, and uh, the digital newspapers and things like that. So you really do need to have it as as part of the operation, and it has to be controlled and and run by somebody who knows what they're doing. I've, and a good example is, is I talked with one general manager a couple of months back, asked him, you know, who was the guy that, that uh, updated the Facebook site and the website with the best of the morning show? He said, well, that's, you know, the student that came out of Nate. And I go, do you think that's the best judge for what should go on as the best of the morning show? And you'd look over and go, okay, now I get it. So, no, it, ha- it, has to, it has to be integrated. And you also have to have a go-forward policy. I mean, who does what when? Your operation's open 24-7, 365. You know, do we have somebody covering it at night and weekends? What are they putting on there? What is the philosophy? What are, what are the do's and don'ts? And I would doubt many companies in media have a written philosophy and a written policy that is assessed at least twice a year with the way things are changing in social media. I've found very few. Yeah, the only policies when it comes to social media that I've ever seen have been from companies that say, this is what you can and can't post on your social media. This is what you can and can't post on your station's social media. And that's it. It's not ever really a, uh, here's what you should be doing, or here's what we should be doing, or this is where we should be going, but more, please don't get us in trouble with your mouth. That's... That's exactly it. There's more of a fear of, of putting, you know, something on the air, whereas a lot of the, a lot of the stations in the States um, are starting to realize the power of what uh, podcasting, for example, for this. If you go to podcastone.com, uh, this gentleman spoke, the guy who runs it spoke at, at the Hyvio concert in San Diego, or, or, uh, conference in San Diego that I went to. That has 132 million downloads a month, and you'd recognize a great number of the people on it. Dennis Miller's on it. Uh, Larry King is 
on it, and they're realizing that digital can be an extension of what you do on the air. So you do a talk show, you have a great host, he's on for 17 minutes, then you have to run your commercial stop set. Well, you can go on the on uh, the podcast site now and catch the other hour of chat with this person, or half an hour, or you know other short forms, and then link up with them digitally as well. There may be a chance for you to go live and do podcasting, talking back and forth that wouldn't normally be accepted on the air, but on digital it is. And and that's the way they do it down there. You know, if you know that guy from Podcast One, feel free to to tell him about us, eh? Well, I've been actually working on a project in Canada where I'm trying to get uh, a number of broadcasters here to start thinking about doing a Canadian version. And we've got some pretty good interest from uh, some top guys right now that are saying, yeah, I, I like the idea. Well, by all means, when you get that off the ground, you give me a call. Hey, brother. <laughs> now, we started this whole thing with you as a writer, and you said, hey, people always told me I was a good writer. And now here you are with columns that you write on a regular basis, one about people specifically in Edmonton, and then in the Edmonton Sun, uh, you write on the, uh, the sort of the page six there, talking about things in the industry. Knowing so many people, especially in that Edmonton market and, and having been hooked in, do you ever find yourself, like, do you type things out for your industry column and then delete it because you're like, no, no, I can't put that in the paper, someone will get mad at me? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Often. Um, I, I really try to highlight uh, good work done in the city, and I really do a focus on, on community service because I really think that's an area that is suffering with consolidation over the last number of years. I've just seen an awful lot of radio stations that you know just don't have enough personnel anymore or they're not out in the street anymore or programs you know, to support anymore, and I think that's suffering. So I do, a lot, I do an awful lot of, of work within that to make sure that gets exposure as well. I, I do all the media for the Edmonton singing Christmas tree and it's kind of a neat one because it loops around we we've raised close to $600,000 in the last five years, of which about 40% of it goes back to Santa's Anonymous, which my dad started in 1954. So I get the double whammy of that. So I, I like to kind of showcase the, the neat stuff that's going on in media in Edmonton. Is there ever going to be a Marty Forbes column, or maybe not under the name Marty Forbes, but a column about the bad things that are happening? <laughs> um, I'm lucky enough that that I go, I, I'm still linked in with all the general managers or programmed directors as friends and I really don't hesitate making a phone call or an email and and sending off my thoughts and I'm at a stage now nobody can fire me you can dislike me for what I say but you're going to get honesty and you can ask any general manager in Edmonton and, and half the program directors I, I comment here all the time about what I what I see now they can disregard it if they want or they can look and say okay the guy's got 44 years in the business there may be some value to what he says and either way it's win-win because because uh, I've, I've got to express what I feel. And there have been times when they've made changes or adjustments back and said, hey, Marty, thanks. I never noticed that. So I, I'm, I'm proud of that. Uh, well, I have you because you do have 44 years experience and you've seen so many different things come and go in the industry. So I want to talk to you about some industry things, especially for the young people that are listening. I got a chance to talk to a journalism school the other day. They brought me in for an interview and opened it up at the end to let students ask me questions. And I got that one that I think everybody in radio has gotten at some point or another is radio dying 
Yeah, wow. That's a, and I and I hate the question because the radio is not dying. The distribution system is dying. As far as as students, I think the one thing that we've really done badly over the last couple of years is is with consolidation and with layoffs and and with what we're putting out there, where we say yeah, it, it isn't fun. There are no jobs, and and you can't make a living doing radio. Well. I know an awful lot of very successful people in radio, and th- this is the entry level that we're talking to. We've we've not made the business sexy for anybody to get into it. We tell them you can't make any money. But nothing could be further from the truth. The smart guys in radio and girls in radio, um, you know, nowadays, if they're the full meal deal getting into the best aspect of radio, they will do really well, but they have to be able to do production. They have to be able to do outside appearances. They have to maintain, you know, an image in the community. Uh, there's an awful lot of people that do radio in Edmonton that also do television. That's that's huge. That's wonderful. Uh, there are a number of them that have n- newspaper articles. Yukon Jack, still in the sun with me. Uh, Danny Hooper is not in radio anymore, but you know they, they know that if you have exposure in multimedia, people are going to know who you are. So you can still do an awful lot. But you're going to have to be possessed <laughs> on being successful, and you're going to have to know that it just doesn't come overnight anymore. It, it's harder to, to go through the full progression like I did. There aren't any, you know, small market jobs or very few small market jobs anymore um, where you can go through that. But you, but no, radio radio is not dead. Uh, there's still some really good young talent out there. I still see, I hear some, some really good people in radio in, in my travels, and they'll do just fine. And you're actually involved in uh, something with the CRTC where, if I'm not mistaken, if I'm reading this right, you think that we need to be taking money that we've put aside from different uh, mergers and deals and acquisitions and that sort of thing under CRTC rules and start putting that back into developing this new talent that's starting to come through in the broadcast schools. You bet. I was really fortunate to be asked to speak to the BEAC, the Broadcast Educators Association of Canada, uh, last summer in Banff. And um, at the conference, I suggested that uh, the review of radio was about to come about, and that now that we don't have a CAB anymore, that nobody is lobbying for change and nobody's updating the CRTC um, you know, without, without self-interest to be able to move uh, any pr- anything forward. So I suggested to them, and they did accept this, that after this would be 43 years of Canadian uh, talent development all going to music, that it was time to redirect some of that money to the other, you know, Canadian aspect of, of radio, and that's the verbal part. And the CRTC has accepted that, and uh, there's a hearing coming, and I know they're talking to Canadians about television, cell phones, cable, so radio is next, and we believe we'll have an opportunity to go into Ottawa and talk to them about the plan that we have. Now, the Astral deal and the Bell deals alone, $1.8 billion and $3.4 billion, means that Canadian Talent Development Fund has more money in there than it'll ever, ever get spent. And you've had, you've had and I, I want to be complimentary to Canadian artists because I don't mean it in a negative manner, but you've had, you know, 40-some years now of, of, of supplemented airplay of 35 to now 40%, and now it's time, and during this time period, the last 
last five years, we've lost all-night shows, we've lost weekend shows, we've lost small markets, we've lost program directors in these markets, and I just think that, that the, the verbal part of the radio station is really starting to suffer in some cases, in some formats and markets, and that it's time that we better take a long look at the future of developing talent, and those are the markets that we need to get back into and, and help these people along with proper education and funding. I mean, if you graduate from Nate and had to go up to Fort McMurray to work for your practicum, you're not going to be able to afford to do it. So we've come up with a couple of innovative things that I can't unveil quite yet, but it'll be a tangible use for that money to help uh, broadcast students in the verbal part of radio. So journalism for sure, but the announcing skills uh, for sure as well. So we're, we're quite happy and hearing some stuff back from the commission that they think it's, it is time to, uh, to take a look at that and uh, hopefully we'll pull it off. Well, that's great news. I'm, uh, you, it's funny you use Fort McMurray as an example. When I went to Nate, when I went to radio school, a very good friend of mine who is currently still in the industry, and I won't use his name because for some reason he refuses to come on my show, uh, <laughs> but he went to Fort McMurray for his practicum, and it, exactly what you said happened. He went there, he wasn't making enough money, and he had to leave. And he was lucky to be able to bounce back and get into the industry. And he's doing fine for himself now. But you just look at what ended up being a fairly promising radio career could have been nipped in the bud right there because there's no money. Yeah, I, I, I think the spoilage rate over the last five years for students coming out of uh, these courses across Canada is really, really high. It, it's harder than ever to, to get to a market, to be able to get some cash, to, to stay there for a while, to learn and, and move forward. And that's exactly what happens. They, they get tired of the industry. Uh, they can't afford to work in the industry, and they quit, and we're losing a lot of good talent. A couple of things about consolidation. One, do you think that the companies that right now are buying up all the stations, the Bells, the Rogers, the Choruses, etc., are ever going to start selling off chunks? Do you think we'll ever see a return to the independent days? What you're seeing in the States is is a similar pattern of that happening. And I'll use the, the Bonneville Group, for example. Um, you know, a lot of these companies were forced to buy a, a number of properties to keep up to consolidation, and, and otherwise they're going to lose them to competitors, and bought a bunch of markets where they didn't have much expertise or didn't want to be in. So Bonneville, for example, that run really good radio stations in Phoenix and Salt Lake City and, and in uh, uh, western U.S., pulled back, sold a bunch of markets, and are focused on formats that they're they're comfortable with and a region that they're comfortable with. Whether that'll happen in Canada, I don't know. Nobody, nobody likes to be... Uh, a seller <laughs> anymore, and there's only three owners. Uh, you know, we we've, we're out of the era of of the development coming within the industry. It's going to come from you know these are broadcasters that that have come from you know from television and newspapers and and cell phones and ringtones. So I don't know if we'll ever be able to find someone enough to buy you know a four billion dollar company. And on the other side of things, do you think that the large companies as they stand now? will ever pull back from what they're doing because right now you're seeing these uh, large companies doing what you say you know they're scaling back we have no overnights anymore we're losing weekends we're losing small markets do you think that those companies at any point will realize how essential those can be and maybe start to expand those shifts or does the bottom line just make it too difficult i think it's well 
I think I think it is difficult because most of the money these days are not coming in from traditional revenue. I mean, most of these companies make, make way more money off of their, your cable subscription or roaming fees uh, than they did on, on radio or TV commercials. I think technology has really changed the way everything is consuming. Um, I don't I don't think we're going to see. I mean, if I sold transmitters for a living these days, I'd <laughs> I'd retire really really quick. I don't think we're going to see transmitters in about ten years. So they're going they're going to have to adapt to technology and and uh, tuning patterns changing. And I really don't know with a crystal ball where it's going to be in the next five years. If you look at the trends uh, of everything going over the last five to seven years, it's a pretty clear vision of where you know radio, TV, and print are going. Uh, you just said you you don't have a crystal ball, but if you had to pick one piece of technology that is going to most impact radio in the next number of years, could you limit it down to one that you think people should be keeping an eye on? Uh, wow. <laughs> I mean, I'm addicted to my iPad. You, sh- you should see it. I go all over the world with it. I just, uh, I'm waiting for my new car to arrive, which has Wi-Fi in it. So I can take my little tune-in app. I can get into it and drive from here to Phoenix listening to KGSR in Austin, Texas. So w- what is that going to bring down the road? I, I, it's tough. I mean, the portability that you now have uh, is, is massive. I mean, you can listen to 100,000 radio stations. Uh, those are off-air stations. And then the web stations, BeatlesRadio.com, another great one. I listen to it all the time. So, I, yeah, I, if I did have a crystal ball, I'd be way richer. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that this will impact the way that radio stations do ratings with the, the fact that, like you said, it's, it's only a matter of time before really we have access to the entire world of radio as opposed to just in a singular market? Does it really, is it going to matter in the next 10, 20 years how well you're doing compared to the station down the street? Uh, that's one to ask an owner. Um, you know, when you start blowing up eight shares to come up with a four-share radio station to save money is, is pretty fascinating to me. The, the, the rating system has been assessed and unhappy with since the day they started. And I was talking to an owner in a small market last week after his his diary book came in and, and uh, seeing some anomalies that, that are just absolutely crazy. If you talk to the local guys here about PPM each time, if you have a good book, everything's fine. If you have a bad book, it, it isn't. Um, I, I, I don't know how they're ever going to pick up the massive amount of changes with a handheld uh, radio and a set of headphones uh, nowadays. I, I, I don't know how they're going to keep up. Now, this whole episode has really been you giving advice to people who are, are looking to get into the industry and, and giving tips on, on how you did what you did, but is there anything else you would say to someone who's just starting out, maybe just going to Nate uh, for the first time coming up here in January? Yeah, get yourself a mentor. And I would not have made it without my dad and people like Bruce Hogle and, and everybody that, that I ever learned from. I mean, find someone who's passionate about the business that you can bounce ideas off and that you can get proper guidance and, and learn from and, and be possessed to be successful. That, that's the biggest thing. Get And get out and work the community. I mean, if you follow my daughter, Rayanne, but she's just immense. This lady is so involved in, in the city of Edmonton. She writes a column in the Edmonton Examiner. She runs her own foundation. That, that's the key is being engaged in the market and being part of, of what makes the city tick. Um, it, it's a formula that, that just works regardless of what's going on technologically. If you're involved in your city and make a name for yourself at any size of market, you're going to do just fine. Some of these people, though, and I know I was, when uh, before I got to uh, Standard Radio in Edmonton and, and got to be in the building with the people who would eventually help shape my career as it 
continues to go. I was terrified to reach out and be like, here's a guy on a number one morning show. I want to ask him some questions, but he'll probably tell me to go F myself. What do you say to those people in terms of how to reach out and find a mentor? Um, you know what? You, you will know it with that first contact. There And there are some great ones out there. I don't know if you knew this or not, but we had a policy inside the building there that no Nate student would ever sit in that cafeteria by him or herself, ever. And you would see the Yukons and the guys like that who came out of Nate sit down and chat with you. You were made part of that place the day you walked into that building. And I was really, really proud of that. We had Nate Day where those where you guys got to come in and spend the entire day sitting in a room and, and knowing and meeting some of these people. And you can tell, uh, you know, Brother Jerry in Calgary every year takes the entire state class out for lunch and buys them lunch. I think it was 18 or 20 people. And he sits in the middle and, and you know, answers questions and, and has fun with these kids. And they're, they're out there. There are some really, really good people that, that, you know, are just as concerned as I am about the industry. And they they don't have a problem sharing their time. To be fair, the Nate day was great because that was the day that I got my job at, at uh, 1260 working in the creative department for Rob Vavrick. But when I first started, Yukon told me that I wasn't allowed in the cafeteria. So... <laughs> Who's one person, and you say you listen to a plethora of radio, not just across the country, but across the world. In Canada, though, who's one or a few people that you think PDs and other radio people who are listening to this should be tuning into to to check out the talent, to steal ideas, whatever the case might be? Well, this this is the question that always gets me into trouble. (laughs) It gets everybody into trouble, but that's why I ask it, because it's fun. Well, I'll I'll tell you... um, and I'll just stay local with, with what I've heard over the last little while and the type of people that, that, that I engage with. Um, I, I love Garner Andrews. Uh, I didn't know him very well till we sat down last year and had a chat with him. What an interesting guy. And some of the stuff they do is just so innovative and so fun. And they've, they've been really successful at, at being true to their, their you know format and their school since the day they launched. It's, it's a really, really good radio station. So I like Garner. Ryder uh, over at Hot is just an absolute riot. This this kid is so infectious and so engaged, and uh, I enjoy my time with him. Uh, a couple of the ladies, you know, that I, I really enjoy. Charlie Morgan is is a, a fun, fun lady. Boy, she works hard, and again, in the community, she's she's a very, very neat lady. Jalen Nye is so versatile, and I love chatting with her. Um, Shirley McQueen is another great lady. Been at some really, really good radio stations. My old Bear crew, I mean, Yukon is, is iconic, and and Jillian's just a sweetheart. They've been really, really good. And, of course, Paul. Um, and, again, I don't mean to offend anybody. I don't know some of the new people that are coming to town. I, I should get over to, to Virgin and meet some of those uh, those people because I haven't, and there's been some changes over there. But there's a there's a number of really good people in the market. I was thrilled the other day to turn on Randy Kilborn uh, at Chad, who I went to, went to school with in Bonnie Doon. And you want to talk about a great news person? Randy's just the most natural guy. And, you know, Bryn Griffiths, of course, over who's gone back on the air, his first love over in New Cap. So there's, there's lots of good talent in this city. Can I just say that the one reason I haven't had Ryder on this show yet is because everybody talks about him every episode. I don't need him. Everybody else has told his story. He's, 
he works hard. I, that's what I like about him. He he works hard. He has an awful lot of fun. He's he's a reverend. He knows the line. And uh, you know, one quick phone call, right? Do you want to go for coffee? And away we went. And I really enjoyed meeting the guy. He's very cool. Uh, that's going to do it. I we've we've been at this for uh, quite a bit of time here, and I, I do thank you for taking the time. Before I let you go, I do want to let you know that I have been wearing a toque while recording this entire interview. Okay, brother. And I've been sneaking peeks at my NFL. My Cardinals are on in about half an hour, so timing's perfect. And and I do thank you for this. Um, I do have a great deal of pride in this industry, and uh, I applaud you for doing this kind of stuff, Drew. Keep it going. Thank you very much. I'll let you wrap it up. Uh, you say you're not much of an on-air guy. You speak fairly well, in my opinion. Uh, you get to introduce a spin of the week, so if you could go back to Kamloops and channel that old Marty Forbes on the air, if you want to tell us what we're about to listen to. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I can remember the moment that I finished my last shift on my way to CKXL Calgary in my 1964 Chevrolet, and I tried to figure what a good song uh, would be to play, and my last song I played on the air was The Raspberries Go All The Way.
the Off Mic Podcast. Follow the show online at Off Mic Podcast on Twitter or like the show on Facebook. If there's a guest you'd like to hear on the show, email Podcast at gmail.com. The Off Mic Podcast is a part of the Dolby Radio Network.